Welcome to I'm Fine, You, brought to you by Maybelline New York, where we are normalizing the conversation around anxiety, depression, and mental health. Now here's your host, Chrissy Rutherford. Hello and welcome to I'm Fine, You, presented by Maybelline New York. Maybelline's Brave Together initiative is dedicated to breaking the stigma around anxiety and depression while addressing challenges and providing resources to those in need. Hi, I'm Chrissy Rutherford, and on this podcast, we're channeling this mission into real-life conversations to help normalize the mental health conversation and provide tangible resources and guidance for anyone who needs a mental health boost. To provide mental health resources, Maybelline New York will make a monetary donation to mental health organizations in conjunction with each episode. Today, I am joined by fitness instructor, mental health advocate, and ambassador for the National Alliance on Mental Illness, Kendall Toole. Kendall joins me now to talk all about her personal journey with mental health, finding balance in her life, and why it's so important to shift society's perspective on mental wellness. Welcome, Kendall. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Of course, I'm so happy to talk to you today. The feeling is so mutual. This has been a long time coming, so I'm very excited. I know, I know. So let's jump right into it. Like when it comes to your mental health journey, you've described Mm -hmm. yourself as an open book and you've spoken about a really dark chapter in your life when you were in college. Can you tell us a little bit about what was going on your senior year? For sure. So really kind of where my mental health journey began was right about 10 or 11 years old, I was diagnosed with obsessive compulsive disorder. So Mm. I had all of these rituals. I couldn't walk around in bare feet. I hated, (laughs) I still hate when crumbs touch my feet, no less. So I'm a big vacuumer. (laughs) I'm a big vacuumer. But yes, I am proudly currently even barefoot. So we've overcome (laughs) some of those struggles, which is great. Love that for you. Right? I know that was the beginning of the mental health journey. And then really as time went on and the pressures built in college, at the time I was acting as a kid and I, you know, that industry is quite merciless and thankless and, you know, it's a lot on a young mind. And, and I think I was coming to the point of realizing my, the dream I set for myself, my goals I set for myself, weren't probably going to come to fruition the way that I had always thought and planned I could control. Okay. And so come my senior year of college, the colors were fading out of everything. The world felt very numb and black and white and about just about November and a bit of a warning if anybody's listening just because this is a bit sensitive, but around November, right around Thanksgiving, I was on the verge of committing suicide and I was contemplating and was at that moment. And I had this absolute rush of a feeling and I can't even describe it. The best way I could put it would be I future casted what would have occurred. And a lot of it was seeing how it would have affected my family and the fallout. And there was this kind of flash moment. And then I look over and my phone that I had put on silent, I had 15 missed calls from my mom. I just got the chills. Mm -hmm. She had an instinct. Something was wrong. I was very high functioning. I had straight A's the season before I was cheering on the cheer team at USC. I was graduating Mm -hmm. with a degree in a strong, like strong minor, almost a second major. Nobody would have known. And I really kept it from everybody, including my parents. My parents did not know how close to that moment I was until probably three or four years later when I finally felt like I could open up and share that with them. Yeah. And the shocking part is that I'm from a very close knit, very Italian, like we do everything (laughs) together. We do everything together family. So I was really suffering in silence. And so after that experience, I 
picked up one of the, now probably the 16th phone call from my mom, started crying. And I said, can you just come pick me up? And that began the journey of recognizing and acknowledging I was diagnosed with anxiety and generalized depression as well. And so I started going to therapy two to three times a week. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this is a blur the next three months. Very hard for me to remember. And that began this knowing of myself of knowing, okay, this is going to be a part of my life for the rest of my life. This is a part of me that I have to learn to live with. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. I mean, yeah, I can't imagine. And that really kind of, that just changes your trajectory. Completely. And thankfully you were in a place where you then like really decided like, okay, I need to get serious about what's going on inside of me. Mm -hmm. I think the, the biggest realization moment was even in my family coming to pick me up, my mom picking me up. I don't remember any of that. But in the months after, and then really trying to graduate on time, I was very hard on myself. I still have stress dreams actually to this day. (laughs) Also, like, I feel like it's like a high achiever issue too. Mm -hmm. I'm a grown woman. I am almost 30. Okay. (laughs) I will wake up out of two in the morning. I'm going to miss my final and I'm not going to graduate on time. Oh my God. But it was such a rooted trauma for me because I didn't want to fall back in life. And I was so worried about falling back. I had so much shame and judgment and, and just pressure on myself that I had accrued over these years from being a kid. I probably growing up in the industry that's come up in therapy now. Thank you, trauma, you know, and then moving into my adulthood and negotiating my place in the world and what I meant to do here. It's really interesting how the effect, even seeing how people treated me after that, the care that they had, the the concern that they had, I started to realize how much I mattered Because at that point in time, when I was in that very dark place, nothing felt real. Nothing felt like enough. It just felt very empty and quiet. And the best way to describe it is numb. So it's like I started waking up again. So when I, you're completely right. It totally changed my trajectory. But the beautiful thing is looking back now and realizing, oh, this is the reason why I get to do what I do now. This is, this is the, the kind of fuel in my engine for why I wake up and do what I do. Right. I know I have that same feeling as well as someone who speaks about mental health a lot. It's like, who could have ever imagined that like those painful moments when we were kids would literally be the impetus for us to be able to help others. Exactly. And you realize those childhood you know, as we all uncover in therapy, I know you talk about therapy a lot and like finding <laughs> yeah. a new therapy. It's like dating. There's, there's a, that whole side. Of the oh world. yes. Oh, it's a process, but it's yeah. so interesting when you start to explore these themes and explore these little moments that at the time, obviously don't feel like much, but they can mm-hmm. be so life altering and affecting in our perception of ourselves and how we go into our world as adults. And it is beautiful though, that knowing those, those traumas or those experiences or those setbacks actually helped inform something really special that now you and I both get to do in our life. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. Absolutely. Me too. And I also feel like I'm sure so many people listening can also really relate to this piece that you're talking about, you know, the high functioning overachieving, you know, my heart like really goes out to the kids who are like just coming out of college, mm-hmm. you know, maybe with student debt and just, you know, the world feeling as uncertain as it is. Like, 
like, I just can't imagine like how truly overwhelming that must feel. Oh, completely. And I think everyone wants to, I think especially like everyone just wants to feel like they, they're going to get things right. You know, like you're out of school, you know what you want to do. And like, I need to get this right. And, you know, I've had all the straight A's and everything, but there's still like something missing. Totally. And the way that we're kind of raised in the system that we're put in, right? It always is. Mm-hmm. Here's the scoring system. You're valuable yep. if you score in this range. Inherently. Yep. It's just a flawed way of looking at things. It's not about exploration. It's not about growth. It's not about evolution or finding the joy and the lesson in having a failure or having a setback or getting a poor grade. It's always about perceived performance and not about like purposeful growth. And when you go through that time and time and time again, and you get conditioned to that, and I really feel for these kids too. I so hear you. They have social media on top of it. (laughs) So they're trying to now perform they're, they're constantly performing for different audiences, for different spaces, and then trying to yeah. receive that validation in terms of likes or going viral on TikTok, or mm-hmm. I should have built a brand by 18. Like I put that right. pressure on myself as a kid actor when everything was a no. And I felt like I failed myself. I can only yeah. imagine that as a teenage girl or a teenage boy navigating, trying to discover who you are, trying to mm-hmm. discover what your path is, and then looking to those outside sources for validation, because that's where they come from. And always feeling like you're falling up short. It just, I think that's why we're seeing so many kids, especially Gen Z. I love that they're talking about it. I want to give all of them the biggest bear hugs. And it's like, oh, I love (laughs) you nuggets. Like I just go, yes, go, go, go. Talk, 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 get it all out. But it's also affecting them at such a massive rate. I know. Yeah. I just like, I could not even imagine what it must feel like. Because even when I... I'm about to age myself, but I graduated college in 2008, which was when the recession was happening. So I kind of experienced a little bit of that where I had a dream. I knew like I want to work in fashion and I had had internships and I felt really good. Like I took the summer off because I was I just felt really confident like, oh, I'm as soon as I'm ready to get a job in the fall, I'm going to get one. Yep. But then suddenly there literally were no jobs And that feeling of like knowing what your purpose is, but not being able to get there and just not even like having the opportunities really is just so frustrating. And I remember feeling depressed because I just felt like, well, I already like know what I want to do. It's just really hard to get there. You know, on top of the fact that like the fashion industry is super competitive, toxic, you know, all that fun stuff. Right. Just like, yeah, just like the (laughs) entertainment world. So yeah. Again, our hearts go out to the Gen Z kids, but they're going to figure it out. And, you know, I think there's also we don't talk enough about like the ability to also just like evolve. Like you don't have to have everything figured out at like 24 and that's what you're going to do for the next like 30, 40, 50 years. Like, yeah. I think it's so fun to know that like you can decide you want to do something for a couple of years and then be like, actually, this doesn't feel like the right fit anymore. Mm -hmm. Maybe I want to try something else or go into a different industry. And I know you've also experienced that because Mm -hmm. you didn't start off as a fitness instructor. Oh, no, 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 no. I never thought this would be my life. And it's true. I was that kid and that high performance kid that we all talk about. And I'm sure you can relate to this of like, here's my five year plan. I think I actually had one. (laughs) which is hilarious. And now the older I get, the more I'm just like, screw it. That's just not how it works. But when I graduated college, I actually was like, all right, I'm going to work in tech and media. 
And he ended up getting this incredible dream job out of school at a wonderful, big, very well-known company that was in its infancy. So early stages before they went public. And I worked there. Turns out the culture was incredibly toxic. I was very surprised too, because I had been, I think a little privileged and spoiled in, in the communities that I had been a part of, even though I was in entertainment, when I was interning, yeah. when I was PAing, I was on a lot of very male dominated sets. And I have a yeah. mentor who's a man and makes very male dominated content, like very almost yeah. machismo, but <laughs> just those themes, right? Like you have yeah. war, you have fighting, you have things like that action. Stuff. Right. And never once felt out of place, always felt welcomed, always felt safe, always felt protected. Mm-hmm. And I could speak my mind and I could, you know, stand up for what my thoughts were and I could come to the table. When I right. was at this particular company at the beginning of my career, it was so the opposite. And this is what I've noticed a lot in young tech. And mm-hmm. I know I have a lot of female friends who have gone through this same experience. Tech in particular for women, it, it can be very challenging to navigate. Because for some reason, it's like things have referred back to the 1980s Wolf of Wall Street era where women (laughs) tend to be seen more as objects or you, the mansplaining is very real. The lack of opportunity for fighting to be heard. You're filling more of a quota than you are filling the role. And that Mm. was always very frustrating. And so this culture was not the right fit for me. And that is actually what got me on the path to where I am now. So I was working for this company. It was not a great place and, and moved on from there and was thinking, what in the world do I do? What is my path yeah. next? And you want to talk about, okay, great. So 21 years old, have this massive mental health moment, right? I'm finally right. getting it together. We've done the therapy <laughs> thing. Okay, great. Kendall, you're on it. You have this dream job. Everybody would love to have this outside of school. Now we're back in another valley, right? Now it's incredibly toxic. I'm working crazy hours it, the communication styles, the things that were happening behind the scenes were all very not great for anyone's mental health, male, female, whomever. It was just not positive. And so now navigating out of that. And then I moved back home with my parents, ego, totally bruised, 25 (laughs) years old, 24, 25, mid twenties for the record, my friends, if you're in your mid twenties, they're tough for everyone. I think everybody, the mid twenties are the secret, like hunker down, honey, because it's going to be a little bumpy for a bit. You know, I know. And I think a lot of kids, when they hit 25, they think that's the marker where no. like you have to have things figured out. No, I'm like, actually, like, I know yeah. I'm like 25. That was definitely like a low point for me. Same. And then like months after my 25th birthday, like I ended up getting my job at Bazaar and that like set me off on a path. Yeah. But at my 25th <laughs> birthday, I did not have anything figured out. Oh my gosh. Same. I was, I moved back home with my parents. I could barely make a car payment. My ego was so bruised. I went to this incredible school. I know I have supposedly this brain that's worth six figures and I'm like, <laughs> you know, which, Hey, student debt. Yay. We love it. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, what am I doing here? And again, my, my confidence in myself, my self-confidence, that internal messaging, that doubt, especially as somebody who has anxiety, And, you know, it's that nasty little voice in your head. And then you start to believe Mm -hmm. it the more you hear it. And at the time, so my mentor, who was that very machismo film director, (laughs) um, (laughs) who's wonderful, we're so friends to this day, he's great, but he owned a boxing gym. And so in college, actually, boxing became a big part of my mental health story and just finding my own power, especially even Mm. through my time when I was working at that former company and transitioning. And so Mm -hmm. my boxing coach, who was a good friend of mine, was opening a boxing fitness studio in West Hollywood. And he was like, hey, 
do you want to come and teach? Like you're good at boxing. You have like, you love helping people. Might be kind of cool. I was like, does it pay? Because <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. I need to do something. I need to get out of here. I needed to find purpose. Right. This is what I mean by, and I hope anybody listening to this, if they're at a crux or at a crossroads or at one of those moments where it, you don't know what the next move is and the unknown is really scary. One little moment like this, one little yes, one little just try it is what started my next path completely. And so I started teaching for this tiny little new studio. I taught four classes and the owners of a different boxing fitness company came in to take my class. I will never forget. We're still friends to this day. Tatiana. She's amazing. (laughs) She was in a wheelchair and was born without the use of, I want to say from her, where was it? I think it was her T4 down. She didn't have Mm -hmm. ability to use her legs was born that way, was the brightest light I have ever met. And I remember she wanted to come take boxing classes. And one of my earliest boxing classes, the first or second one, everybody canceled. Like I was supposed to have a class of 20. Everybody canceled except for Tatiana. Except for Tatiana. (laughs) And so I, I, this was, uh, I love her because, and I can almost get teary talking about it because there's those moments in your life when you have that connection point and you can look back and be like, wow, this was a cornerstone in the journey. Yeah. And Tatiana came in and I remember in the middle of class, there's always an ab section. And so I talked to her beforehand and I was like, Hey, there's an ab section. And she looked at me and she goes, Oh, that's not a problem. I got it. I was like, well, how can I modify what? And she goes, you don't need to modify. I'll show you. I was like, okay. So it's just her and I, it's a one-on-one class. I'm on a stage She's right in the bag. She's killing it. And and sure enough, I was like, all right, ab section. And she reaches down, locks the wheels on this wheelchair, mm-hmm. hoists herself up, pulls herself down to the ground. And she's like, all right, I'm ready. Are you going to give me a weight? And she was bouncing <laughs> and did abs and did it like nothing. And I was like, do you want me to help you? She's like, no, I can get myself back up. And she got back into her chair and then we put the gloves back on and she kept boxing. And it just was this moment of like, nothing and no one was going to stop Tatiana from what she wanted to do. She wanted to learn how to box. She was going to learn how to box. Mm-hmm. And it made me recognize if her energy in life can be that. And I can do this and be a part of someone's process of seeing them learn something new and getting to touch their power because I get to help support that journey. I'm like, oh, I'm mm-hmm. addicted to this. I love that. <laughs> and so, of course, the class, the owners of that different boxing fitness company, Tatiana was in the front row. And that was a big reason why they hired me because they saw our relationship. They saw what she did. They saw how we create that energy and that community and that space together. And next thing you know, I'm in, I auditioned for this one place. I got the job. I'm in New York for six months for the first time ever in my mid twenties. It was a dream. Oh my God. And then I opened that studio in Los Angeles and the rest is kind of history. So incredible. Yeah. What a journey. Yeah. It's wild. I never thought ever that I would be teaching on a bike or throwing punches for a living. So thought, you know, I need to get back and use this brain that I have at some point. We'll get back to producing eventually mom and dad. I promise you we will. But yeah, it's just, you know, you, you realize it's finding the the alignment. It's finding the purpose. It's not finding the certain career or the job or the title. Those are going to change. They're going to change time and time again. It's like, what is that through line? What is that purposeful piece of, I think I'm here to do this. Right. And whatever you do, as long as it falls in alignment with that, what's for you will come to you. I really believe it. Oh, me too. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So uh, 
Just to segue back a little bit to the toxic work environments, because mm-hmm. I feel like that is also a very prevalent conversation these days, yes, the yes. great resignation, mm-hmm. the quiet quitting, <laughs> all of that. That's better that in the headlines these days. Yeah. <laughs> I know. But what are some of the unique set of challenges that women face in professional spaces when it comes to mental wellness? And like, what are some of the things that you have found to be helpful when navigating those challenges? Oh, yes. I think first and foremost, there's the double standard we all know, right? So yeah. we're already facing this. We're trying to tackle this bit by bit. It'll get better. When a man in a meeting is direct, poignant, or even in an email, email is actually really where you see it. If it's, I need this by this date, please, whatever, or maybe not even a please, nobody says anything. If a woman says that in an email, oftentimes, you know, you hear she's being bitchy. She's being caustic. Difficult. She's difficult. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. The level, first off, (laughs) if I had a damn nickel every time I've heard I'm difficult, (laughs) Guess what? I'm as difficult as they come and I'm fine with it. I don't, you know, you get to that point of just frustration of I'm sick of casing myself for you to receive me how you want me to be for you. Difficult is actually just a code for she has boundaries. Thank you. And setting that, and that actually goes into, I think what we need to have in in those workplace environments, right? I would Mm -hmm. say number one is community. Having, oh, and I will die on this hill. (laughs) <laughs> Women need to have each other's backs at work, period, period. Yep. That is, I think, the biggest challenge to us being able to overcome some of these cultural issues, especially in toxic work mm-hmm. environments. There is a, a scarcity complex that I think is kind of given to us as young women because we're always told to oh, compete absolutely. for beauty, compete for men. We are pitted against each other. Well, that's actually mm-hmm. really convenient because when two women come together and do something incongruence, that power no one can, I mean, two women on a mission, good luck. They'll win Louise, you know, like it's happening. Like things are getting done. So of course it makes sense that society would want to pit women against each other. I'd say in toxic work environments, find your crew, find your women and ask, are we both getting paid the same thing? What are you doing for your roles? How are you feeling? How did you navigate this very challenging person in the workplace? What has worked for you? Creating that level of communication and just support systems, I think, are really key. Same goes for mental health. Yeah. What women deal with in the workplace, both, you know, now that I'm getting into my 30s, a lot of my teammates are pregnant and going into that stage of their life. It is different. Mm -hmm. Being able to make sure that everyone's needs are met and you're protected and you're having those conversations is key. So building that community of other women, I'd say, would be number one. Yeah. Number two, staying consistent. Eventually, if you keep holding your boundary, eventually they'll know you're not the one to come to. You don't have to put a smiley face at the end of your email. You don't have to put an exclamation (laughs) point. I stopped doing it recently and it ruffled a couple feathers at first. And then I had to sit down and talk to a couple people and say, listen, if I have to, if you are imbuing a tone onto my emails because I don't put an exclamation point, that's your perception. That's not my messaging. This is a professional environment. You send me something that ends in periods. I'll send you back something that ends in periods. <laughs> Has nothing to do with how I feel about you personally. Because if you period. heard my period with period with a T, period. Like, <laughs> yes. let's relax. So I would say having the community and then can staying consistent with those boundaries. With the mental health side, also being able to step away from the workplace. 
create your world, you have to have a world outside of your role and your job because if validation comes to you from that one space, you will always be left empty. Mm Mm-hmm. I cannot agree more. You know, even when I was leaving my job at Bazaar, like Mm -hmm. I had to spend a pretty good amount of time, like mentally, like separating myself from that workplace, because especially when you work in fashion and when you work at very well-known brands, you become so enmeshed. Like I remember when I would like be out, you know, with other fashion people and like you get introduced like, oh, this is Chrissy from Bazaar. And I'm like, well, why can't I just be Chrissy? You're like, like I'm you Chrissy can just regardless. introduce me yep. as Chrissy, mm-hmm. you know? And it's like, I wanted people to start seeing me as my own person and not just, oh, I have value because I work at this yes. magazine. It's the transactional nature of here's my name, here's my credential. And I feel that. I mean, I work in a very public company. So everywhere I go, I represent my company. Yep everything I do, anyone I talk to. And it's been a wake up call a little bit too, because of the attention that you receive. So if Mm -hmm. I'm in, you know, walking around the streets of New York and someone almost hits me with their car, part of me wants to flip them off and say, what are you doing? (laughs) And maybe, you know, drop a few choice words because I was scared and want to protect myself or feeling kind of confronted. Yeah. There's someone with a camera or there could be somebody who is a part of my classes or different things of that nature And I have to be on guard and on point. So I hear you. I think separating yourself from work and and creating your sacred environment. I have a great mentor. She's one of my favorite humans ever. She is a huge producer, the most humble and hardworking woman I know. Early on in the role that I have now, she actually pulled me aside and she said, listen, I know you're doing a lot on social media. I know you're building this brand. I know you're giving a lot of your energy to what you do day to day. She said, I need you to remember and I need you to write down what you're going to hold sacred. Mm -hmm. And she said, those sacred things, whether they be your relationship, whether they be the relationship you have with your parents, whether they be a certain skill you have, a certain, a certain hobby you do something, maybe it's a, you know, you're not going to show certain parts of your life on social media, certain spaces. She goes, you hold those spaces sacred and nothing comes in until it earns the right. I like that. And I didn't really understand it then. And now a year after really that deep, I was like, (laughs) oh, she, oh, oh, is that right? (laughs) I had uh, my last relationship. I was very public with it on social media. Mm -hmm. And then my kind of footprint and my reach grew pretty significantly in a couple of years. And that was a mistake. I definitely learned that. I learned that I allowed, because I didn't hold it as sacred as I Mm would have liked my transition on from that relationship and to my own healing, my own process. Now there's 700,000 people who think they have a right to know what's going on. To know. Yeah. And oh, then you're, God. oh, I got a real, I can't imagine. Oh, I've gotten some DMs <laughs> in the past couple of weeks about like what his exploits are. And I'm like, listen, like we are, I don't, we don't follow each other. No harm, no foul. We're like, no, 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 even just, you know, if you have a big following on social media, as you do as well, it's, it truly is for all of us. We have to know those areas and those spaces of our lives that we protect and we protect them because we love them and we honor them. Not everybody deserves all of us. I agree. And also because we're also people who already like do share a lot (laughs) of our lives. 
I think it also kind of feels tricky sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Like, where do you actually draw the line? Mm-hmm. And where are you? I've, I hear you. Because then you're like, am I being authentic if I choose to keep this certain aspect? Or is this something that I'm going through that could help another person? And am I holding it back for selfish reasons? Navigating it is, is tricky and it's challenging. But I think at the end of the day, in that process of holding boundaries and understanding what's sacred to you, your gut's never wrong. And you, you kind of right. get that, that instinct and that feeling the more, and I'm learning this, yay, Saturn return, end of my 20s. <laughs> a lot of growth, a lot of growth in the past couple, last year in particular. But at this point, sure. I'm recognizing sitting in the quiet and sitting in the, if I don't have the answer right now, let me take some space and wait for it to come mm-hmm. to me. Let me wait for the invite and the invitation yes. to what the next step is. I love that. And it always reveals itself. So that's a big one for me, though, because I always was a girl that was forcing a boulder up a hill and fighting for everything and thinking that if it wasn't challenging, it wasn't worth it. And now I'm recognizing that you can build your foundation. You can set this beautiful space and what is for you will come to you and then you honor it and work with it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like a lot of times the things that are in alignment with us also just tend to flow. Yeah. You don't have to fight it so much. No. I mean, that's, if I could go back and tell like 21, 22, 26 year old Kendall, anything, it would literally be girl, put the gloves down. Like if, if you have to fight, like if you're spending this much energy, it's not for you. And guess what? It's not. And something so much better is coming. And I would love to say, And of course, fear brain, scarcity mindset, anxious mind will always be the thing that chirps and says, but what if this time it's different? But what if this time the other shoe is going to drop? Yeah. But what's beautiful, I think, about aging and about evolving and developing and and taking stock in the process is you realize, oh, I have factual support that shows when I don't Mm -hmm. fight for this and if I fall into flow and I'm focused on my values and my purpose and what I want to create in the world, it'll always come. It'll always come. Not always, not the way you want it or the timing you want it often, but it will come. Agreed. Mm -hmm. Yes. So when did you actually first go public with your story Mm -hmm. about what happened to you in college? Yeah. So it was just about, I want to say I started this thing called chats on the green on my Instagram. I had Mm -hmm. a vision board just about a year before I got the current job that I have now. And I always yeah. wanted to get a green velvet couch. I think I saw it in like bazaar or something. No lie. I thought in somewhere <laughs> like, Ooh, it's trendy. And I was like, Ooh, it's so beautiful. I was so broke at the time. Like the concept of having a couch, <laughs> let alone a space for the couch to be in was quite right. the stretch at that point in time. And so I had it on a vision board. And then the first thing I bought when I moved to New York city was a green velvet couch. And it was this beautiful moment in my tiny little studio I should have gotten a love seat, but I wanted the full couch. It was pretty much neck, like on my bed. Get the full couch, girl. I got the full couch. <laughs> and then we've now upgraded. Now I got all the space in the world because we've grown, which is beautiful. But we love it. I got the couch and I would sit down on that couch and discuss kind of loosely mental health conversations, but I was kind of priming and, and kind of seeing, do people want to hear me talk about this? I'm not sure. Yeah. And then I did a class for the platform I work for. And I talked about removing the mask somewhere like towards the end of the class. I I forget what song I played. It just, I couldn't fake it anymore. I knew that a lot of the people that I was reaching had me on kind of a pedestal or had me on, she is this like blonde chick, fake blonde, mind you, duh. 
but <laughs> she's this fake blonde chick from California. Like she's all bubbly. She, right. They, they thought they had me pegged. And I'm like, there's so much that has gone on underneath. And I realized if I'm going to motivate people and if I'm going to talk out of my mouth and try to help people, so I'm talking about being authentic. I can't hide this very significant part of myself. Yeah. I felt like it was just like enough. Like I don't, I want to take my mask off too. Cause I don't want to partake in, in your perception and mislead you. It just felt dishonest. Right. And right. so, cause I'm sure people like are looking at you and they must think like, Oh, you're perfect. And mm-hmm. you know, our society puts so much value on thinness. So yep. it's like, not even just like the blonde, it's like, well, you're, you know, you're so fit and thin and fit and thin and bubbly and happy and a cheerleader. <laughs> yeah. It was everything. Yeah. That I was perpetuating these societal standards that right. I had also been affected by. And I was like, yeah. I am now the spokesperson for what could be perceived as toxic wellness. Because I was the girl that I was fitness Barbie, you know, I wasn't, (laughs) I wasn't fitness human. I hated Barbies growing up. They scared me. I like, I literally (laughs) had to bury them in my closet because I thought they'd come alive at night and kill me. No lie. Oh my God. That's hilarious. You know, the trauma was real even from a young age. So (laughs) back to it though. So I was, I remember, I think COVID had just started. It was the beginning of the pandemic. I'm in my 500 square foot apartment in the city on my green couch, mind you. I think I had my TV. I hadn't had it mounted yet. So it's like, leaning precariously behind me. It's a miracle it didn't fall, but I just put up the camera and I was like, I'm going to do a live. And I was going to talk about something else. And I just looked at the camera and I just said, all right, guys, I have anxiety and depression. I don't know where it just was this moment of like, I'm, I'm done. I'm tired. I'm not going to hide it. I don't want to be this perception of who I am. I want people to know who I am. And if you like it, great. If you don't, I get it but I've spent so many years hiding that part of myself and feeling shame for that part of myself that I was like, enough. If I'm going to do this, if I'm going to be given this platform, let's go full tilt. And that conversation I posted and it was so fascinating, the feedback and the DMs mm-hmm. and the, oh my gosh, oh, sure. too. oh my gosh, well, I'm a father of three and I've always been feeling like that and I'm afraid to go get help or, you know, I lost somebody in my life. I hadn't at that point talked about my struggles with, with suicidal so, thoughts and different things sorry. like that. That came a little bit later. Yeah. But I started talking about mental health and I really pitched and pushed to create content on the platform I work for about it. That happened, that particular class to this day. I mean, it's amazing how many people take the mental health rides at what I do. It's probably one of my highest, every season, it's one of my highest classes. That's so amazing. Cause yeah, it takes a lot of courage. I think, you know, as much as people are speaking up about mental health these days. Mm -hmm. Of course, like there is still a stigma. Yes. There is still that fear that Mm -hmm. people are gonna think I'm crazy Mm -hmm. or, you know, that there's something wrong with me. And that's the challenge with the stigma is like, we're talking about mental health, but we still just have to get past the first hurdle, which is just creating Mm -hmm. a normal conversation. But we're talking about a lot, there's a lot of layers to it, right? We have generations. So many. The way that my mom's mm-hmm. generation looked at mental health is very different than how my grandmother's generation. It didn't exist. If you thought mental right. health or, or you said something about, oh, they're having mental issues, immediately the thought goes to a mental institution from like you the should. 1940s yep. or 50s. And you're in a straight <laughs> yeah. jacket and it's it's Shutter Island, right? Like it's not, <laughs> it's not good. It's like awful. right. Then you go to my mom's generation and it's, well, there's a lot of, they didn't do something enough. Right. Right. It's, it was more, well, they caused this by something or they, 
They were always going to be this way. It was, let's just pretend it's not there or put it under the rug. Yes. Let's sweep it aside. Yeah. And then come our generation. And now with Gen Z as well, I, I think we're all part of a very similar shift. Now it's, well, I have it. Well, I have it. Well, I have it. And now Gen Z is becoming the voice of, we all have it. So what are we going to do about it? They're creating action about it, which is wonderful. But if you think about it in an 80 year gap, we've gone from, it doesn't exist. It's the most frightening thing you could say to you're hearing most one in four, one in three really kids in predominantly 17 to 25 are dealing with it. Yeah. So yeah. the doors have opened. I think that destigmatization and talking about just opting in, speaking up, even saying, you know, I've struggled with that a little bit too, even if that's the first way you say it, or I had a period in my life that I really felt that way too. It just, it, it gives a little nugget of acceptance to someone else, to someone else. It makes it a safer space to be able to speak up and be a part of that same kind of wave of people who, who deal with this either on a day-to-day basis or had a season of it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think we still have some ways to go before we can say that we're like post stigma, but like in an ideal world, how would you like to see society approach mental wellness? You know, because to me, it should be just as normal as being like, Oh, I'm going to the gym or I'm taking care of my body. People should feel confident to say like, yeah, I have a therapy appointment after work today, so I can't meet up for drinks. Yes. And that's the thing I would say, if anybody, the way that we can get there is by, if, by doing that ourselves. I've started doing that. If I'm dating somebody, I'll say mm-hmm. early on, I'll be like, oh, you know, I can't do tomorrow night because it's kind of a fun test too, right? But I'll be like, right. oh, <laughs> oh, you know, I have therapy. I can't do that. Oh, you have therapy? Yeah, I go to therapy. Then either the response is, oh, that's interesting. Or it's, oh, that's cool. I do too. Or, oh, that's awesome. Ooh, Good for you. Yeah. So you can, right. it's a great way to gauge. Anyone dating? It's yeah. a great like little temperature <laughs> check. We love doing those. Okay. I can give you a couple yep. of those. But truly it is. I think it does. We're not post-stigma yet at all. We're quite far from it, especially because depending on different communities as well, right? There's people who think that mental health could be fixed through certain means, or it just means you're broken here. It just means you haven't done enough this. We, or even culturally, it's, we don't talk about it. That doesn't happen. Or especially for, for young men, I really feel for them. I think there's all of this pressure and, you know, true machismo culture and, and the challenge of that, of no, you don't feel, you're not allowed to emote. You're not allowed to cry. You're not allowed to do these things. It is petrifying what is happening for that population and to be suffering in such silence and isolation. So, yeah, and we're seeing it and we're really seeing the ramifications of that in really awful and violent ways. Yes. And we're seeing that self-isolation and wanting to be acknowledged and feel powerful. And it, it, it's just turned in, into some really, yes, some heart-wrenching Dark awful, awful tragedies because of it. And I think if we start to have these conversations normalized, I say always this, start in your circle, right? Mm -hmm. You know, your people, you know, the people that the ones that you can call when you're a little inebriated and you're like, Hey, and you you call them next day and it's like, what did I do? And they're like, it's all good. We love you. You're fine. I got you for Uber. You're good. You know, those (laughs) friends, those are the friends to start with, right? Or the friends that You know, or even like if you're in a part of your workplace or or you have a good kind of community within your workspace, say, hey, you know, I had a tough weekend or hey, like, you know, let's do let's create something here where we can kind of have like a mental health conversation and working and creating ERGs within companies and bringing in opportunities for that, I think is key. But I would say always start within your circle, start with your own vulnerabilities, share your story, share when someone asks you if you're good, be honest. 
If you're not good, say, you know, it's not a great day. I'm kind of having a crappy one and here's why. And I'm just really anxious today. And watch how the person that you say that to immediately guard comes down because they know that they can meet you where you're at, but it Mm -hmm. takes courage to do it. It does. And it takes time to get to that place. Yeah, absolutely. You touched upon isolation Mm -hmm. and obviously like the last almost three years have been a really challenging time for so many people, the impact of the pandemic and which will be felt for years to come. How did you approach your mental health during this time? Full disclosure, it was challenging, especially because I had moved to New York City probably six months before COVID hit. Oh, wow. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So I was brand new and I was so focused on about three of those six months, I had to be a secret. So I couldn't walk into my workplace and look like my normal self. I had to kind of hide and scurry and I couldn't hang out with my teammates because they didn't want the news to be leaked. So I was Mm -hmm. kind of living in isolation. Granted, it was all training. So I was so focused on this job. I had a little imposter syndrome going on. So, (laughs) you know, we were, we were a little, we were in the thick of it and something new in a new Mm -hmm. chapter, let alone going from California to New York city. Right. Total different culture. Right. And the energy. And I don't think I slept proper at all for like a year and a half. I'm like, what's with all the fire? I don't get it. I know. I was about to say, but did you like get to New York and were you just like, oh my God, like <gasps> this like, pl- yeah. I mean, like energetic playground. Yes. And I was like overstimulation. I can do that. I was like a pinball. Mentally, I'm already a pinball. So then you put me in an environment that's like hyper stimulus. And I was so excited. And it just, it's everything heightened is New York City. Right. So, yeah. navigating that and trying to find peace and calm in it. Honestly, I feel like I'm finally getting there and I've been here for three years. Now I kind of found my yeah. flow, which is good. We, we found that balance. But yeah, when, when COVID hit and pandemic hit, I had that green couch. I had my bed. I had about 500 mm-hmm. square feet and, you know, <laughs> and I got a dog like we all did. Thank goodness for my little angel baby who kept me Aww. occupied. But there were three mm-hmm. months I didn't actually, I wasn't able to do my job because I couldn't get to the workplace. And so right. I will tell you, I worked out a lot. Mm -hmm. I FaceTimed a lot. I did definitely develop my friendships and my relationships deeper in that time, which was very, very helpful. But it definitely, I became a very different person. I think we all did. I became more fearful. I became a homebody in the first time in my life. I was always out and about. And now the fear of, you know, seeing sirens or going to like the neighborhood bodega and at that point, we, I lived very close at that time to the Javits Center, which is mm-hmm. where the make okay. hospital was. Yep. And it was absolutely earth shattering to see one. I mean, every five minutes, no joke, there was a siren. Yep. And to see yep. that. And then I had a couple friends who got it. One of them was almost in the hospital on a ventilator. And you're living in like kind of the epicenter, especially New York City at that time. It was so bad. So you would walk down an aisle in a bodega and someone would like, truly jump. They jump and you're like, Oh, oh." and then you're like, wait, don't breathe. Like, you know, we're all wearing masks. People have gloves on. It was a darn apocalypse movie. It was so wild. It was a dark time. Like Mm -hmm. I remember just like having a full on like panic attack after coming home from the grocery store because you're like, I could have gotten COVID at the grocery store. And then you're trying to wipe (laughs) stuff down. And then you're like, but do I touch my doorknob? Do I not? Yeah. (laughs) And it was, it was an interesting thing too, as somebody that has worked through the, I will always have OCD tendencies, but as someone who's worked through it, it triggered a lot of those childhood memories of wearing socks, wiping down my shoes. 
I would mm-hmm. wash. I mean, my, I think all of us, our skin was like raw because we were so trying to follow what the protocol was and constantly doing laundry. And yeah, it was definitely mentally draining. I will say, and this is what I so love knowing that there were that many people out there who were also going through it. And I had the ability, once I was able to go back to work, I had the ability to reach them somehow. It gave me so much mm-hmm. purpose knowing like yeah. I'm not well here. I'm, I'm at about 80%, maybe 60 some days, maybe 40 some days. I'd wake up, there were days I'd wake yeah. up and I'd just cry. And I'd just be like, I want to get out yeah. of here. I feel suffocated here. Like I need to leave. I missed my, mm-hmm. we all, we all dealt with isolation different, but there was this moment of connection with doing my job and then social media. And then that's where it kind of chats on the green and opening up about my mental health. That mm-hmm. pressure cooker, I think, created that exhale for me. And it's what yeah. opened now these wonderful conversations and what I what I really am leaning into at this point in my life. And I'm grateful for it. So pandemic as haunting and, and tough and challenging mentally as it was, it helped me lock down some of my processes that now help me a lot today. That's amazing. And so now, obviously, we are transitioning back to a more pre-pandemic way of life. What are some of the biggest challenges you've experienced, like when it comes to your mental health now, like that? Because like things are pretty full on again. Yeah, it's it kind of is weird. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie, especially in New York. It was like we were. Oh my goodness! I remember like my parents came out for Christmas. We were eating outside. I think at Lartuzzi or something. And it's like mm-hmm. 20 degrees in the street, street Lartuzzi <laughs> in the street, which if anybody knows Lartuzzi, the food is amazing, but New York city restaurants are so much about ambiance. Yes. The food is great, mm-hmm. but the food tastes better because the ambiance is right. Yes. There is no ambiance <laughs> in a street. I don't care how they build it when it's 20 degrees <laughs> and your California father from Palm Springs at this point is in a parka mm-hmm. shivering while he's trying to eat those like really good mushrooms. Oh. It, bless his heart. He was like, <laughs> I was like, we should have gone to California. This wasn't the vibe, but all good, all good. But yeah, I think it was odd because it was full tilt. And then it's kind of like it, it almost feels like it didn't happen. I know. But it very much did. I I would say. And is still happening. Yes, exactly. It's not something that has completely, you know, regardless of all that. But I would say I I came back out into the world and I felt this pressure to do everything initially. Mm -hmm. Right. It's like, I've missed so much. In a lot of ways, I was like, two years of my twenties were taken away at a time when I could yeah. have been gallivanting through New York and finding out who I was, you know, whatever. <laughs> I think at first I felt pressured to do everything and to go back to who I was before. And then I recognized I'm a different person. I really, yeah. I need a lot more recovery. I need a lot more mm-hmm. isolation than I ever have. I mm-hmm. really love my couch. I mean, I know we all say this, but like quiet time, even time away from listening to music. Sometimes I'll just sit on my floor, play with my dog, or he'll be chilling on the couch, and I just lay there and just listen to the silence. silence. I love it. And finding, yeah, I think learning to take space, learning to say no, I think that's also part of, you know, growing up and developing as as a woman at this point in my life. But I say no a lot more. I'm Mm -hmm. much less inclined to go. Like there's an event I could go to tonight. Nope, not happening. Mm. I'm too tired. I know I need my energy for something else. So I would say yep. it's taught me to slow down and that I don't have to do everything. And I hope yeah. that people coming with the space that we are now as a society, they don't go back. None of us are going to be who we were before pandemic. Right. It's different. I agree. When you have a life altering shift like that, especially societally, 
we'll never go back to how it was before. And I don't believe that we're supposed to. And so it's like, what is the lesson that we learned or the lessons? How can we incorporate Mm -hmm. that? We are changed. So how do we live our best with this new kind of version of ourselves with this new information and with this new set of experiences? And I think that's important. Like forgive yourself if you feel like you're different or you're not who you were. None of us are. Right. None of us are. Yeah. What advice would you have to people who are struggling with the transition sort of back to this full on Mm -hmm. version of life? Totally. You see a lot of it. I've heard from a lot of people who are through that experience. They've uh, developed some like smaller versions of agoraphobia and being fearful of going out into public Mm -hmm. or travel or things like that. By all means, go at your own pace. Don't feel pressured by someone around you. If they're not going to respect, again, if they're not respecting your boundaries, they're not respecting you. Mm -hmm. So go at your own pace working. Of course, I'm a big proponent of working with a therapist. If there's parts of your mental health that have come to need more attention, that's actually a good thing because you now can address it, right? You you can't fix a problem that you don't know exists. So if at Mm -hmm. this point and now returning to how the world is today is very triggering, write down the triggers. Like I'm a big data person. I'm a big feedback person. So if I go out into the world and I'm getting very stressed or anxious, even today it happened to me while I was at work. There was a lot of just conversations going on and noise and my energy level was high and I had a lot of caffeine before I taught and different things and I needed to separate myself. So I went into another room and I did a couple of things for my job that was more quiet and then I returned back. Yeah. Taking like personal temperature checks not even just like how we do it for our health, but how we do it for our mental health. Asking, checking in with yourself a couple times a day, like, where am I at? How am I feeling right now? If it drains, don't do it. If it excites in a good way and empowers, do it. And if it leaves you neutral, do you have to do it? I'm like, I'm a big, (laughs) yeah, doing less of the things you don't, that. that aren't even, even neutral tasks. I think it still takes energy. So being about your conservation of energy and giving yourself grace, it's, it's going to be a process. This was a massive traumatic event for all of us. And if certain people are affected differently, that's okay. Yeah. So also like much like physical fitness, mental health is something we have to continuously work on and it can be really easy to fall into a slump and like not do the things in our routine that actually like help us stay on track. What do you do when you feel yourself begin to like slip into a rut? I go back to the foundation of the basics. So usually, and this is always my alarm system or my little, like my feedback loop, right? If my Mm -hmm. home starts getting cluttered, I know my mental health is starting to go downhill. That's just my thing. So I think each of us kind of has a, a little something that's an alert system, right? And if we notice we're slipping on just some of the basics, is my sleep consistent enough? Am I fueling myself enough? Am I, another thing for me is irritability. If I'm feeling Mm. shorter and certain things and, you know, New York will let you know real quick. There's always going to be something that's going to piss you up. You know, if someone bumps you in the grocery store and doesn't say sorry, like, do you let it roll or do you want to pop off? If you want to pop off, you know, (laughs) you know, that's, that's a sign. It's like, okay, take the breath, then go back to the needs, right? It's that very simple I always go back to obviously sleep, nutrition, movement, mm-hmm. and then some form of meditation. It could be meditation. If someone's more spiritually inclined or religiously inclined, it could be prayer. It could be whatever. 
those yeah. four to me always go back. And so I also know one thing that helps me every morning, I wake up, I gratitude journal. Yes. I'm absolute must. And it just is the one thing I do. So it's three things that I'm very grateful for. And I try to get really specific mm-hmm. and there's, yeah. you know, early morning brain. It's a little challenging sometimes, but that's why it's important <laughs> to prime it. And then yeah. one kind of message I want to give to myself that day. And at first I really struggled with that because mm-hmm. talking to myself positively has been a skill I've had to learn. It's not a skill yeah. I was naturally ingrained with. In fact, it goes very much the other direction. So the way that I kind of I feel like a lot of us struggle with yes, that. <laughs> and, and that inner critic and that inner voice being so harsh and so domineering and the way that thank you therapy, I have learned to loophole that is yeah. I imagine I'm giving advice and I'm looking at 10 year old me or nine year old mm-hmm. me and inner child me. Right. And what I would tell her if she was going to go and have the day that I was having. Right. And all the responsibilities mm-hmm. that day, or maybe some of the things she's nervous about all of it. And by kind of depersonifying, but also personifying in a way of such compassion, it helps me give myself my, my kind of message for myself today. And then I always like, for me, like I say a prayer and I'm like, all right, in your hands, give it up, whatever I meant to do, however I meant to walk today. Like, let me do that. Like, let me be that person that I need to be. Mm -hmm. And that surrender that I've started to incorporate in my day to day has helped so much because we're not, you know, it's really tough. We are not in control at all, but we're in control of how we respond. Yes. Ain't that the truth? Oh, I mean, if we were good at it, <laughs> it's, it's, it's the life's journey, you know, getting out of the way of the ego, but. Mm-hmm. Getting out of our own way. Yes. And now to wrap things up, mm-hmm. you're also an ambassador for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Yes. Tell us a little bit about the organization, the important work that they do mm-hmm. and how you became involved with them. Yeah. So it started a couple years ago. I, when I opened up about my story publicly, I was like, I really want to work with an organization that's destigmatizing on a national scale, but also is kind of a hub to elevate other charities in the space, other service people mm-hmm. in the space who are doing this work. To me, yeah. every single, you know, whether it's Jed Foundation, whether it's Mental Health Coalition, whether it's, you know, Bring Change to Mind, all these incredible organizations, they all need to work. We all need to work together. This is a global pandemic of a different kind that is going to continue and persist. And the thing that matters most to me about mental health is that it affects all of us. Doesn't discriminate against anybody. All of us can be a part of it. All of us have been affected by it in yeah. some way, shape or form, whether personally or by proxy or through relationships. And so mm-hmm. what I love about NAMI is that they create kind of this whole set of resources. They work with this great doctor, Dr. Ken Duckworth, who will open and have all these wonderful conversations. And they're really kind of the hub to steer people into the direction that they need. So it's a great landing mm-hmm. space and a kind of landing area for anybody who's just trying to begin to understand what their needs are and then finding support and help. Right. And lastly, I also want to talk to you about your work with the organization Bring Change to Mind, which was founded by actress and activist Glenn Close. Tell us a bit about them and the work they do and how you're working with them in collaboration to raise awareness and funds. For sure. So what I love about Bring Change to Mind, uh, I ended up going to, got invited to a gala event and I really learned about their organization and what they do and was so moved by the people that are a part of it their head Pamela, she's fantastic. And what they're doing and what I love is that it's really focusing on that 14, 13 to 14 to 25 age range. 
So when mm-hmm. a lot of us, and I know for myself, when I had my big mental health moment, I was in college. It happens a lot between college and high school. And what they do is they help fund and support community groups within high schools and colleges so that any kid who's going through something has peers their own age who are supported with information, with both funds and just community within these spaces. So there is a safe space. There is an environment there where someone can walk in and not be judged and be accepted and talk about these deeper feelings and not have to do it on social media. They can do it in person. They can do it on social media, which is great, but they're doing outreach (laughs) where it counts, right? Because I think at the end of the day with mental health, I could squawk and talk all day long, but it is having, (laughs) and I will knowing me, but it's having that direct connection. It's being able, the conversation that's going to change somebody's life is the one that you have with them one-on-one when no one's around. When you're mm-hmm. open and vulnerable and you're, we're going from human to human and that's how deeply this cuts and this affects. And that's why we have to do this together. So to both empower young people who are going through this challenge and chapter and maybe lifelong chapter in their story to giving them that community access and a support system to do so. I love what they're doing and I believe in what they're doing. And so a lot of the partnerships that I do, or if I am creating product or, collaborations mm-hmm. for clothing or sunglasses or something. I'll always portion yeah. this year I've dedicated to going to bring change to mind for what they're doing for that Gen Z community. Amazing. I love that. Well, thank you so much, Kendall, for being here today. Thank you for your vulnerability and your wisdom. And I can't wait to see you in person again. I know. Soon. I'll have to hop over the pond to get to you. Maybe <laughs> I'm very open-minded to that, but Chrissy, thank you so much. You're just how open and honest you are and what <laughs> I'm obsessed with your newsletter and I read it all the time and I'm like, oh, I'm in it. Oh my God. Yes, the same. So thank you for creating that space for so many of us. Oh my God. You're so sweet. Talk to you soon. All right. Talk soon. Thank you to the amazing Kendall Tool for coming on the show today, speaking her truth and showing us the beauty and being vulnerable. We're here to provide access to mental health resources and support those who need it most. Make sure you're subscribed to I'm Fine You. And if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review and tell us what you like. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Chrissy Rutherford, and this has been I'm Fine You, presented by Maybelline New York.